0: I'm back and this is Areva Martin in real time and I'm your host, Areva Martin, and this is our two and we are talking about the need for some kind of pretty radical reform of the US Supreme Court in light of some of the conduct we've seen by justices, particularly Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. And a ethics complaint filed by U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse today to Chief Justice Roberts regarding an interview given by Samuel Alito to a conservative lawyer at the end of July. And in this hour, I'm joined by Gabe Roth. He's the executive director of an organization called Fix the Court. And Philip Blumo is joining us on the line. He is president U.S. Term Limits Organization. Thanks to both of you for joining me. Let's start with you, Gabe. Uh, Give us uh, the uh, kind of the lay of the land as it relates to this complaint that was filed today by uh, Sheldon Whitehouse. What is it about and why is it significant?
1: Uh, It's significant for for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, uh, let's start with the fact that this is not really a thing. Like you can't really sort of under federal law, under existing protocols, file a complaint against a Supreme Court justice. Now, if it was Judge Alito, one of the 2,500 lower court judges that gave the interview to the Wall Street Journal and was speaking with individuals that are later going to have business before the court in those pages, uh, you could file a complaint. Anyone in America can file a complaint against a lower federal court judge. But the Supreme Court is outside of those federal guidelines and that needs to change that's the point that senator white house is making by filing this complaint he's saying look if we had proper ethical protocols in place this is how an ethics complaint an ethics complaint process would proceed there would be a complaint issued which is what white house did today And then there would be fact finding by the person in charge of the ethics committee. Of course, there is no ethics committee at the Supreme Court. Again, that is what Sheldon Whitehouse is trying to do by filing this complaint to point out that there is no, not only is there no process, there's not even an inbox In which to file the complaint and this is again is completely apart and different than every other level of the judiciary and every other branch of government there's a senate ethics committee a house ethics committee an office of government ethics in the executive branch that does not exist at the supreme court so today's complaint is really sort of putting out a a blueprint as to what should happen if we had a court with accountability and it's really throwing down the gauntlet to chief justice roberts and saying look These protocols are not in place. You need to create an ethics committee. You need to create an ethics office and an ethics code and an inbox for complaints. And I think that by filing this complaint, uh, Senator Whitehouse is raising these issues in front of not only the justices, but also the American people.
0: So, Philip, how did we get here Mm -hmm. where we have this (laughs) one branch of government, as Gabe just said, that has no oversight, no ethics uh, committee, no process in place? and that's different from lower court judges is different, uh, for Congress people and senators and even the president of the United States. How did we carve out this untouchable space for our Supreme court justices?
2: Well, you know, the founders of this country, uh, were trying to strike a balance and they recognized that, that, uh, members of the Supreme court need to be somewhat detached and not connected to current politics, not, con- uh, and are not really there to represent people like, say, representatives in Congress are. And so they really created a a, a lifetime term where they'd be free to basically uh, act out their conscience. The problem is, is that we've had unbalanced courts. Uh, we've had particular individuals that are now in there for life. And so what our organization argues, much like we do for the Congress, um, that there should be rotation in office in the Supreme Court to create a more balanced court where each president will have. The opportunity, theoretically, to, um, to to nominate the same amount of of uh, justices going forward and that they would not be there forever.
0: So, Gabe, uh, Philip said the founding fathers wanted the judiciary as it relates to the Supreme Court, not the entire judiciary, but the Supreme Court to be free from politics to not have to uh, answer in a way that answer to constituents in a way that senators and Uh, Congress people do. But do you think the uh, founders could anticipate a Supreme Court with a Clarence Thomas and a Samuel Alito and others, but let's talk about those because those are the ones who've been in the news lately, that have these very messy intertwined uh, relationships with donors that are ideologues donors that have staked out positions uh, on cases that are appearing on cases that make their way to the Supreme Court?
1: So, so I think, man, that, that is, that's a, that's a tough question because I think the founders in I think okay, maybe in like the 1780s and the 1790s when people were writing the Constitution and were writing the the Federalist Papers, they were trying to establish this independence as a reaction to King George III firing colonial judges, right? So King George III oversaw judges in England and judges of the colonies. He was firing them willy-nilly. State constitutions, which predate the U.S. Constitution, gave judges life tenure, so that became part of the U.S. Constitution. But if you fast forward a couple of decades, um, in in the early 1800s, you had the, the, the seminal case of the Supreme Court, Marbury versus Madison, where the chief justice of the United States had a conflict in the case and still participated in the case because he had a specific view in the case that mm-hmm. no one could really stop him. Uh, that was in 1803. I think in 1804, Congress made it so the Supreme Court didn't even sit that year. They just skipped a term. Uh, and also that year, they reduced the number of justices from 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 uh, six to five. So President, I think Jefferson, didn't get a, a pick. So, um, you mm-hmm. know, the thing is, is that all of these, you know, the, maybe the, the the initial founding generation of us, you know, but like maybe maybe when the founders were in their 40s, they saw, thought something. But by the time they got around to their 50s and 60s, they were playing politics with the court is sort of the point that I'm getting to. Politics has always been That's a right. part of the court. I think we'd be naive to to, to not think about it. Uh, uh, you know the um, during the during the Civil War. I mean, gosh, the you know Dred Scott led in a in, in large large. You know, in, in certain aspects, to you can draw a direct line from that to the Civil War. You can draw a direct line to that to to some of the Confederate uh, uh, justices. You know, not no longer, thankfully, being a part of the court, and then Lincoln getting more justices. You know, der, uh, Roosevelt tried to to add justices to to change the dire, uh, trajectory of the New Deal. Um, you know, the, the Eisenhower, I mean, I, I could go through every president in every era. The court has always been part of politics. The fact that people are denying it is just completely ahistorical. You know, as, as, as Philip pointed out, like this, there was this ideal that the judges are going to be apart from politics and apart from influence. But if you look at American history, that hasn't panned out. And, and really, it's this era where we're not doing anything in response to the ethics crisis of the court that is the anomaly. When there was an ethics crisis in the court in the 60s and 70s, with uh, Justice Abe Fortas who had to resign because he was uh, taking money that I probably shouldn't have, there was a whole ethics protocol that was established in, in the judiciary and a financial disclosure requirement.
0: Um, who, who Stop right there for a second. Who established that protocol? Uh,
1: Chief Justice uh, Warren Berger. Uh, so, so even Abe when Fortas, the court, yeah.
0: okay, so sure. the, the court, there's some history you're saying, Gabe, of the court policing itself. Correct. I.e. the chief justice implementing some ethics rules and those rules mm-hmm. uh, having to be followed, obviously, by the, the court and causing Justice Fortis to uh, be removed or to resign from the court.
1: Yeah, and Taft did it. And when he was chief justice 100 years ago, mm-hmm. Rehnquist did it when he was Justice 30, chief justice 30 years ago. It's really been Chief Justice Roberts. And I don't know if it's because he can't get a consensus. He doesn't want to move on ethics until he has all nine of the uh, justices with him. But I think, you know, he's got to really assert some leadership here and say, look, enough is enough. The American people have lost confidence in the court, putting aside the the, the opinions, which could be a whole other third hour of your show with some of the ridiculous opinions Mm -hmm. that have come down. But just putting just looking at the institutional uh, integrity of the court, that is really being questioned by the American people like never before. So Chief Justice Roberts needs to show so show some leadership, needs to tell uh, Alito and Thomas to get off their addiction to private planes and really make the the court come into you know kicking and screaming into 21st century best practices and ethical leadership.
0: But Philip, what power does Roberts have to do this? Because Alito and Clarence Thomas seem like they are so uh, you know stuck in their notion that they are right. Alitos, in particular, it's that they had, seem to have so much, you know so much hubris, and they've been so arrogant mm-hmm. about their conduct that. Even if Roberts did have the courage to say something to them or to try to impose some rules on them, don't they have the right, right. to reject them?
2: They do. They, can, they, can, they are there for life, according to the U.S. Constitution. Now, I'd point out that Congress has a, a lot of power in this to be a check on the Supreme Court and that the number of justices is not set in the U.S. Constitution. And so that is something that the Congress and administrations have messed with over the years, as Gabe mentioned, and I think that's a very important power. And again, I'd like to say that the, uh, another thing that was not included originally but can be done via, via amendment and maybe through some other means that we can talk about, that we can create a situation where the court turns over and that these people are not – if a bad apple gets in there, he's not in there forever.
0: So you're you saying uh, eliminate this concept of lifetime tenure and create some yes, term lifetime limits. Tenure,
2: correct. Now, lifetime tenure used to be a lot shorter than it used to be because lifetimes are shorter. Right. But the, um, and I think that's an out, I think it's a very outdated notion that someone's going to stay there uh, for, you know, all that time and it also creates a situation where where uh, this is gained. You know, the age of the justices we're choosing and things like that. And when they retire, it's all based on politics and games and becomes very deeply political and very acrimonious. And I mm-hmm. think that if you had an 18-year term limit in which that you can expect to be in there only for a certain amount of time, an, 18, an 18-year staggered term limit means that each president normally would be able to make two uh, additions to the court or two nominations to the court under normal circumstances. And I think that would go a long way to creating balance in the court, or at least a balance that voters are looking for, not just bad luck. And then, um, and also to ensure that bad apples, and also in the age of Feinstein and Mitch McConnell should be mentioned, that, you know, when people get much older, they may not be quite as functional as they were when they first started out in the office. And I think that's another another uh, issue that uh, tournaments help address.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to stay for a moment, thanks for uh, enlightening us, Philip, on this issue of how your organization sees it and it's, it's with respect to term limits, but I, I'm really curious about yeah. Justice Roberts and this mm-hmm. power that any chief justice has to self-govern, to you know implement some rules and what might cause him or her, in this case it's a him, to do so, since again, there's no obvious way to force him to do that, i.e. through any kind of uh, legislation coming out of Congress or Senate or any kind of executive action coming out of the executive branch. When we come forward, want to talk about, you know, what pressure can we put on Justice Roberts? Is he likely to respond to it? And what will it take to change things like term limits and the number mm-hmm. of justices on the court? we can going to talk about all of that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.
1: You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: We are back, and this is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, we are talking about the need to reform our Supreme Court, given the American uh, people's lack of trust in the institution, and part of that is based not only on some of the decisions that have been issued by the court on things such as abortion rights and gun control, but also on some of the personal conduct of justices, particularly Justice Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Gabe Roth, the executive yeah. director of Fix the Court, and Philip Blumo, president U.S. Term Limits Organization, is... Also, both of them are joining me in this hour. So, Gabe, you talked about Justice Roberts needing to take some action. But since, again, there is no consequences if he fails to take action. There's not any uh, you know, discipline that he can face from any other branch of government. What might cause him to... Uh, you know, take action against his fellow justices. He seems to be either oblivious, tone deaf, or protecting Alito and Thomas. He sees these reports. He knows how bad it looks uh, for Clarence Thomas to say, I needed to take a private jet because I was warned about the leakage of this uh, decision in Dobbs. If, if you were concerned, why not ask for some assistance from the federal government rather than going to your billionaire friend and getting on a private jet. I mean, that explanation made absolutely no sense, seemed like a form of gaslighting by the justice, uh, by Justice Thomas.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, going back to to Chief Justice Roberts, let me just mention a couple of things that my organization, Fix the Court, has tried to do in in terms of trying to uh, force his hand to do something on, on ethics. So The first thing we did is we worked with uh, Democrats in the Senate on a uh, amendment to the to the Supreme Court's budget. So the Supreme Court would every year gets about one hundred and fifty million dollars from the taxpayers. And in the amendment that we proposed that was introduced, but unfortunately, we couldn't get get it past the finish line. But it sent a message. It basically said that. We that Congress are going to withhold $10 million of your non security funding until you do something on ethics. Now, this is something that I, in my organization, have been wanting to do for years, but this is the first year that it actually was introduced in a committee in legislative language. So, $10 million of of non security funding that, that could go towards, you know, that would $10 million would pay for all the justice's clerks. So, instead of every justice having four clerks, to help them write opinions. Well, sorry, you don't have ethics. Well, now you don't have clerks. So th- that's sort of the theory is to get them to the table is to take away some of that discretionary taxpayer dollars. And I think that most Americans would be fine with you know, p- having the Supreme Court only make 140 million instead of 150 million. The second thing we did was we worked uh, with bipartisan group of congressmen um, uh, and women. One, uh, uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, a Republican, and Angus King, uh, who's an independent from Maine, but caucuses with the Democrats. So effectively bipartisan one one D and one R uh, on a bill that would that it's active right now. It's it's being debated. That would create an ethics office in the Supreme Court. It would require the creation of an ethics office in the Supreme Court. So, again, that's trying to force Chief Justice Roberts's hand saying, OK, you don't want to do this on your own. Well, then here's money. Here's language. Here's a requirement that you have an ethics officer to which the American people can send complaints that will then be investigated uh, Um within the confines of the Supreme Court. so so those are two things that that we're doing. I mean, th- you know there's no magic bullet, right? there's no magic wand and mm-hmm. not all of a sudden going to become uh, ethical and accountable at the Supreme Court. but I think that finding creative tactics like those and I you know there's no uh, monopoly on good ideas. I'm more than welcome to to hear others at info fixthecourt.com. Uh-huh. but I think those sort of creative ways um, is, is how we're gonna move the ball down the field.
0: so
2: I, well, I know I'd
1: like to make a point.
2: Go
0: okay. ahead, Phil.
2: No, go ahead. I wanted to make a point. Um, another uh, lever that the, the, the rest of the government in our system of checks and balances has um, is, let me back up and, and point out that the, the lifetime um, career tenure of a Supreme Court justice is, quote, during good behavior. And, the, and that does leave something, that, that, according to the Constitution, and that definitely leaves a window open. For instance, a Supreme Court justice can be impeached if his infractions um, reach that level, um, just like a president can. And, and who, who can, can
0: initiate impeachment efforts against a Supreme Court justice, and who has the final vote on that impeachment? The,
2: the... the, the U.S. House, the, just like the president, the U.S. House has the power to, uh, uh, to impeach and the Senate to convict. This has only happened once in U.S. history, back in 1805. Um, And I forget why he was impeached, but it's probably, you know, a corruption, uh, probably a corruption incident or something. I actually don't recall. I apologize. But that that can be done. And that's one that's a sledgehammer type of leverage that you have if you think that the that the um, bad actions are raised to that are are raised to
0: that level. But we know impeachment is also very political and there's no way a Republican Congress is going to impeach a conservative judge no matter how egregious, right. at least in this climate, and it is, is not likely to happen. Right. Uh, so you would need right. the both houses of both the House and the Senate to be in agreement or else we end up like with Donald Trump two impeachments in the House and no removal or no conviction right. in the Senate. So uh, let's talk about other ways to reform the court. Uh, Gabe, Lots of pressure on Democrats when this com- this topic comes up for the Democrats to make as a part of their platform, uh, if they have all three branches of government, the House, or they have the House, the Senate, and the White House, that they would move to implement changes on the court, either term limits or expanding the court. We hear a lot about that. It doesn't have to be nine members uh, per the Constitution, uh, expanding it to 15 to address these two stolen seats by Republicans. Uh, tell us how that would work, assuming you had a Democratic Congress and Senate and White House willing to sign such a bill.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, the, Adding justices to the court could be done by simple legislation. It, it's a you know, 20 word bill and it's been introduced in, in the House and the Senate by a handful of Democrats that didn't you know there's never been a vote on it in either House of, of Congress, but it's been introduced in the last two Congresses. Um, and I think the numbers that they're going with is, is adding four justices to go from nine to 13. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting idea that the the number of justices has changed over half a dozen times in the history of the United States. Um, you know, personally, it's not a proposal that I or my organization supports. I think it's just would be relying too much on this juristocracy and this idea that, you know, the Supreme court is going to be the final arbiter on everything we do with, as opposed to having a constitutional conversation where. You know, Congress passes some laws. Maybe the Supreme Court says it's unconstitutional. But, but Gabe, maybe, Gabe,
0: yes. Gabe, what you're saying doesn't work in this highly partisan world we live in. We can't have conversations about the Constitution. Republicans in the House right now want to have conversations about impeaching Joe Biden for some corruption that they've not produced one evidence of corruption. So how do we get to a more substantive conversation with people who are dead set on uh, not governing and not engaging in these kind of serious conversations, but enacting revenge on the white house because of their, pers- their made up a uh, theory that the white house is somehow responsible for the indictments of Donald Trump and, and other reasons not related to, you know, reality.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right. There are, there are a lot of, you know, norm breaking that is sort of, makes it difficult to to imagine some sort of some sort of action uh uh whatever your favorite action is i mean i like the 18 year term limits i've fixed the court worked with uh members of congress to introduce a a bill on on that um because i don't think it would require a constitutional amendment but yes there are certain norms that would have to exist i think look you know to me the 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 issue is the amount of power that the supreme court has And whatever can be done to reduce that power, I think is a positive step. I mean, I think the idea that, um, you know, what I was going (laughs) to, what I was getting to is, is jurisdiction stripping. Like, there is no reason that the that the Supreme Court needs to decide every single uh, policy disagreement that we have. Why is the Supreme Court uh, uh, putting out a ruling on the Obama Clean Power Plan during the Biden administration? you know why why is the supreme court telling universities who they can and can't accept there are certain things that are just sort of outside the realm of what like 20 years ago any one of us would have thought oh yeah the supreme court can't, supreme court can't decide a presidential election The Supreme Court can't tell us who can vote or uh, make decisions of life or death or to say who gets health care, how women control their bodies. But they're making those decisions. And I think that honestly, you know, because I don't love uh, a juristocracy to me, I think jurisdiction stripping is a better answer than court expansion. But I think all of these things should be part of the conversation because the end goal should be something where the people themselves are deciding how policy works in the United States and not nine unelected people in robes in Washington.
0: Right, but we can't even get to the conversation about jurisdiction stripping uh, in our system of government right now that is broken on so many levels. Uh, When we come forward, we want to talk about what a constitutional amendment would look like if we wanted to have a major overhaul of the court, which would include some oversight by some other branch of government. What would that take and would that be, uh, you know, favorable or would that just create more chaos at the court level? Uh, stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Okay, Gabe and Philip, let's talk about those things that can be done at the legislative level through a majority vote versus things related to overhauling the Supreme Court that would have to uh, be done through some kind of amendment to our Constitution. So, Philip, if we wanted mm-hmm. to, Give some branch of government, be it the Congress or Senate, mm-hmm. you know power over the Supreme Court. Could that be done through just a simple majority vote? Possibly.
2: Yes. there's been um, a lot of work done on this, and I think it's pretty much consensus. well, I don't know, I wouldn't go that far. but it's um, it's likely that could be done. And the reason why is although Supreme Court justices should be allowed to serve uh, for basically life as long under good behavior, according to the constitution, um, it doesn't mention what kind of service they would be performing. A lot of federal judges, or I'm sorry, federal judges can move up to a senior status um, where they're not doing, uh, where they don't, don't have the same duties they had before, and yet they remain a federal judge. And so I think there's a lot of a move towards redefining the role of service of a, uh, a Supreme Court justice after they move beyond, say, the 18 year term limit, where they don't lose the job and therefore, the Constitution is obeyed, but their uh, kind of service changes. And I point out something about polarization that you mentioned, um, that term limits is something that two-thirds of Americans support, term limits on, on Supreme Court. You know, even a higher percentage believe in it for Congress. But two-thirds believe in it for Supreme Court, and that includes majorities of Democrats and Republicans. So there is, so if there's poss- consensus there is a possibility about here. It.
0: Well, if, if there is that consensus, is it the case where the lawmakers are out of step with mm-hmm. the American people, which we know they often are on issues of abortion? That's one example. So it doesn't, I mean, it's great Absolutely. that two thirds of us think that, but the folks that yeah. have the power often are not voting in a way that's consistent with the way the American people are thinking. So Gabe, what, we can't, again, I'm just trying to narrow down What changes would require, what changes to the court would require some kind of amendment to the Constitution? Because we know a constitutional amendment is far more difficult to achieve than a vote where you need the simple majority in the House or the Senate.
1: Well, I think that, you know, if I were to start over and, in other words, have the power to pass a constitutional amendment, what I would do is... Make it so you have a Supreme Court of, instead of maybe nine justices, something like 109 justices. Maybe all of the current federal appeals courts would be on the Supreme Court. And then every two weeks, because justices sit in two-week sessions, you would have nine out of those 109 judges hearing the cases that come to the court. The problem that we have now is that the justices have discretion over the cases that they hear. And only four justices are needed to decide to hear a case. So if you have maybe four justices out of the nine deciding to hear a case and they're all liberal and then two weeks passes and then it ends up being a conservative panel that hears the case, then you're going to there are different sort of gamesmanship that you're going to have that you're going to want to regress towards the mean and not have all these sort of ultra uh, super liberal, super conservative cases before the court, because you don't know which panel and which judges are going to hear the the cases. So if I were starting over, I would say a giant Supreme Court from which we would pick nine men and women every couple of weeks that could rotate in and out. And so therefore, I think their decisions would hew more closely to the 50 yard line and we wouldn't have um, you know such uh, polarization and politicization like we currently do.
0: But we don't have yeah. that now. Sounds like a great idea in theory, but I, I guess folks <laughs> want to know right now, what can we do? We can pressure Roberts, who can thumb his nose at us, which apparently that's what he's been doing. He doesn't want to do anything, obviously, that, uh, I guess, offends his fellow justices on the court. Uh, We can have organizations like yours that continue to put pressure. But is there anything else more concrete? Because it feels like, to me, without any oversight, what prevents Clarence Thomas from taking more gifts, more trips with you know, Harlan
1: Crow. I think I think that's gonna that's gonna continue. I'm I'm almost you know uh, more worried about the next generation of justices that you know whenever the next Republican president becomes president, he or she is going to to pit a couple of former Justice Thomas clerks to be the next set of justices, and I'm worried about their ethics. So I'm already working towards that and trying to rein in some of some of some of their bad behavior uh, on on the baby justices, uh, if you will. So. You know i think that look you know this is a california-based show both of your senators are on the senate judiciary committee both senators feinstein and pd care about this issue the member number of california members and and adam schiff is a local member to y'all uh who care about this issue and are on the judiciary committee this needs to be a steady drumbeat you know eventually i think the justices will feel shame and they will act on their own number one number two i think that there is going to be a political price to pay for people at the ballot box in 2024 that oppose the idea of Supreme Court ethics. Why would you oppose Supreme Court ethics? It is insane that the Republican Party, which five years ago passed a bill that included Supreme Court ethics, it was called the Judiciary Room Act. You can, it was introduced by Daryl Issa. You can look it up. Uh, they are now on totally the opposite end of this issue and totally on the wrong side of this issue. So I think there is going to be, and this is outside of my uh, 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 aegis as how to fix the court because we're a 501c3. But on a electoral perspective, I do believe that there will be a price to pay for opposing basic ethics requirements at the Supreme Court, just like there was a political price to pay for having you know being against uh, uh uh the right to choose from you know wh- whatever consent i don't even know what the republicans are saying now i feel like it changes all the time but i think there's going to be a political price to pay here just like there was maybe not as big obviously as, as it would be for abortion but but i think the time has come and 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 all elected officials are going to see that and i think they're going to move that that way as we get closer to november 2024
0: No, great point. And we do know shame does work, may not change the behavior of that individual, but it can motivate voters uh, to get out and vote, as you said, for those elected officials who are opposing that this one body receive this kind of, you know, hands off treatment where every other individual in our government is subject to some oversight. Uh, Philip, give you the last word on this. What do you think is going to take to reform this court?
2: Well, as you know, because of my because of the stance I've taken about term limits, that's a key one and the main one for me. I wouldn't be dismissive of the amendment because we have passed a amendment to the Constitution establishing term limits before on the president in 1951. It can be done, and you also have an issue that's um, supported by 67% of voters and majorities of both parties. And I think there's a path to have that done even without a constitutional amendment by the Congress under the method that I suggested that. um, proposals have been written by changing the type of service done by a Supreme Court justice after 18 years. So I think that limits um, so is something I think is on the table and popular and can get around some of the polarization problems that we've seen.
0: Do you see, Philip, uh, Democrats jumping on the term limits? Because I've seen Democrats waffle on Supreme Court reform uh, periods where mm-hmm. there's a lot of conversation about it and seem to be gaining momentum and then uh, you know biden's kind of waffling on it and doesn't want to quote-unquote politicize the court so what are you seeing amongst elected officials on the democratic side
2: well it's it's tough and i'm not in control of any politicians or their views or what they do i just know that if we agitate as a people for it when we have the majority so it isn't like it isn't a um Uh, you know, a cry in the wilderness. We're talking about the majority of people in this country, a big majority of people in this country that are pushing for this. And Mm -hmm. so politicians will be rewarded who calls for it.
0: Good point. Uh, Thanks to both of you. Really interesting topic. It's just so troubling for me as a lawyer uh, to see our Supreme Court have, uh, you know, undermined itself by the actions that these justices are taking, taking, and then by Chief Justice Roberts being recalcitrant and refusing to do anything about it. It's very disappointing uh, to see the trust of the court be eroded in the way that it is. But, uh, you know, obviously, as both of you have said, it's up to us, the people, to demand the changes that we want to see. And we can do that as we're approaching this 2024 election. So everybody, make sure your elector, whoever you're voting for, is someone that is in favor of ensuring that the Supreme Court hew to the same ethics that all of us, have to you too, in our respective jobs and positions. Again, thanks so much, Gabe and Phillip, for joining me. Next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.